<clears throat> we've come to the last night of our retreat together, contemplating and practicing the Kuan Yin Dharmas. I feel that it has been a very blessed time. And I feel a sense of uh, supreme personal good fortune to have had the opportunity to, to be a part of this. And our great good fortune to have our dear friend Ian returning after eight years with gift bestowing hand and heart. Mm. And I have the, the opportunity to share practice, share contemplation, share reflections, share teachings together between Ian and Tanisra and, and myself feels uh, it's, it's was such rich, so rich, wonderful. Especially in the setting of an ancient sacred mountain and with spiritual friends, dedicated practitioners like yourselves who've come made journeys from near and far to come and uh, empower this situation, offer your body, speech, and mind, your energy, life force, sincerity into this, into this uh, mysterious crucible There's a sense that it's been a time of uh, the generation of great blessings. The Kuan Yin Dharmas are vast. In a sense, they're a, an expression of the Buddha Dharma. They're an expression of the, the great way of awakening. But a particularly wonderful one that is complete in its breadth and depth. That envisions at least conceptually at first and later our trust can deepen and our experience can broaden around this vision but an envision that we we that this mind, this very mind shared by all living beings of the Dharma realm is fundamentally complete with the thousand dharmas. It has in full all spiritual strength and the use of bright wisdom. Above it equals the Buddha mind and below it is identical to all, to all that lives.
this Kuan Yin Dharmas include this vast recognition of the non-dual suchness of the totality and yet offers offers practical encouragement on how to to move take that journey which is a in a, in some sense it's an immediate journey because this this there's a possibility of waking up to this mysterious suchness in a moment but also there's the the tools that that, that help us to to take this journey all coming out of a, out of a contemplation and practice of listening. Listening at ease to the sounds of the world. At first we, we began with, with the, the classical practices of listening. Classical summative vipassana practices that were, that were offered to us in our wonderful years in the uh, farce tradition with Ajahn Chah and Ajahn Sumaito and other monks and nuns but of, of uh, that, that training the heart to listen to the body-mind to steady the attention on the body on the breathing begin to get that feeling that we're supported. Start to break up that sense of being isolated because as we come to this experience, we realize that there's this field of vitality that is always offering itself with each in-breath. And that's fuel that gives us permission to let go and relax on the out-breath. And working learning to listen to how our energy is directed by the nature of our thoughts and how it can get very refracted and training ourselves to, to learn to direct the listening so that it can become single-minded, unified, learning how to relax, learning how to, to be filled and savor the richness of this moment through cultivating sukha, pity. learning to direct use of volition, but also, most importantly, to balance this this obsessive control that's so endemic in our cultures now, to balance that with receptivity, receiving. learning how to refresh ourselves blamelessly in ways that does not exploit the earth, does not exploit each other. And then using that, that gatheredness, that brightness, that energy, that vitality to, to look into the nature of things, the nature of well-being, the nature of suffering.
listening to these classical, the savaka, aligning ourselves with the savaka sangha, the sangha of those who listen. Savaka means the sound hearers. In this case, listening to the sounds of that incredible gift that was given to us and that has rolled through times, through times since 2,500 some odd years ago when the, when the Buddha, after his awakening, <coughs> turned the wheel, started the wheel of the law turning. And aligning ourselves with the teachings around the Four Noble Truths. Giving ourselves encouragement to bear contact, bear suffering, bear ease, bear the moment. So that we can then begin to be still enough and patient enough and wide enough and present enough to notice how we're generating this, this suffering by, by looking for certainty where, where there is no certainty. Looking in the wrong place. Asking the world of conditions to be what the world of conditions can't be. A stable abiding can't be. And then spending time with the, the Kuan Yin uh, dharmas of holding the name and drawing from the teachings of the Universal Door of the Lotus Sutra, Universal Door Chapter, and the Dharani Sutra, where the Buddha and Avalokitesh for Kuan Yin talk about the blessings of the Great Compassion Mantra. And as we were encouraged in the, in the talks and the reflections that uh, I found very helpful, remembering that we're not alone. Sense of, and I, I love that expression, that uh, when, when Ian distilled it, that, uh, you know, that in, in a sense our task in this life is to call for blessings, to be willing to admit when we need help, and, to, and to, to dare to consider that we can ask for help. And that this mysterious universe hears, listens, responds. And learning to, to little by little contemplate and trust this one who listens at ease to the sounds of the world and has made this inconceivable vow to... even if there's a billion prayers to respond to them all perfectly in terms of what is needed to deliver that being from suffering, from danger, from suffering, little by little, powered by that awesome vow to bring all living beings, including you and me, to this Buddha wisdom. Spending these last uh, four days, uh, no, three days, then uh, 
merging with Kuan Yin. Really contemplating how the worshipped and the worshipper are empty and still, non-dual, looking into returning the hearing, returning the light, to look at it, at what is it that keeps splitting this world so that there's birth and death, this samsara, this yak enamored with its tail, this going round and round, this taking a thief to be our son by mistakenly, blindly grasping it conditions. And in that very moment, perpetuating birth and death. Investigating that, beginning to turn the heart back to listen into the true nature, to turn the heart to the deathless. begin to get a feeling for dropping into that deep pond, pool, measurelessly, deeper, deeper. Getting a sense for that sky-like nature of our heart. getting a sense for how existence, how forms, when we attach to them, create suffering. But how when we let go, the ancients and uh, Master Wise has called it, it becomes wonderful existence, mysterious. When we attach to existence, it creates birth and death. But when we see that it's empty, then mysteries can happen. Master Wah puts it like this. True emptiness does not obstruct wonderful existence. Wonderful existence does not obstruct true emptiness. True emptiness isn't empty. Wonderful existence doesn't exist. Because true emptiness isn't empty, it is therefore called wonderful existence. Wonderful existence doesn't exist, so it is called true emptiness. When we're one-sided and grasp at the world of form, feeling, perception, volition, consciousness, we create birth and death. So then when we start to let go, we, we feel emptiness. <gasps> Peace, non-birth and death. Peace, empty of grasping. <sighs> but there's, sometimes we can get so loving, letting go, we can still hold on. And this is what the talk to Sariputra was about in the Heart Sutra. We can still sort of hold a subtle sense of the sufferings out there in those conditions. Peace, letting go. When our emptiness is empty, 
when we really want it to be empty, when we don't want contact, it's not true emptiness. There's still work to do. There's still aversion. There's still fear. There's still our, our, our emptiness is stronger than form. There's not perfect interpenetration of form and emptiness. So then one needs to, to contemplate that emptiness is not different from form. Embrace form. Find that ease and emptiness right in the midst of contact and form. Too much grasping at form is birth and death. But then when we let form be empty, it becomes a wonderful existence. Emptiness is within Wonderful existence, wonderful existence is within true emptiness. So wonderful about these Kuan Yin Dharmas and how they span this, these wings of wisdom and compassion without limiting to one form. It's not, I also like that it was said, Kuan Yin is not Chinese. Kuan Yin is an expression of what our nature is. The merging of wisdom and compassion. And that that wisdom and compassion can express itself in innumerable, inconceivable ways. As the great saint Nisargadatta says, and this is helpful, and I think, and I was just taking this back home, when, when we're too one-sided and locked into the world, which we are when we haven't done spiritual practice, then it's useful to remember that wisdom says, I'm no thing. Wisdom, learn to see anicca, dukkha, anatta, and we let go. And that takes us back to this oneness with the vastness. But he goes on, compassion says, I'm everything. We let go and still hold on to aversion, then it's, there's paralysis, there's not fluidity. Embrace, compassion says, I'm everything. Wisdom says, I'm no thing. Between those two banks, Nisargadatta went on to say, the life of the wise, the, the life of the awakened one flows. Wisdom says I'm nothing. No thing. Compassion says I'm everything. Between those two banks, the life, the awakened one flows. So we balance ourselves. That's all within the one mind. The letting go, the embracing, the letting go, like the in-breath and the out-breath, they apparently are two. Words make them two, but actually they're not two ways, skillful ways of just coming back to balance, responses within the heart. And this journey from 
the sense of contracted me and you, you know, to this, this awesome where I started tonight of, of this very mind shared by all living beings that's vast. It's, it's, it's a journey. It's a challenging journey. We're just tasting these dharmas. But I'm, what I'm, I feel inspired by this retreat and I hope others are inspired to, to take heart. What else is there to do? Why not do something really good that takes taking us home? To as was uh, reminded us to, to to be persistent, to be patient. And there's also perils that when we don't take this journey and just fall asleep, it's it's the Buddha and Ajahn Chah both described it as a burning house. There's when we, when we unconsciously just follow greed, hatred, and delusion, just views and opinions by habit, that can generate so much unnecessary suffering. I love the way Ajahn Chah puts the journey. This is the journey that Ajahn Chah talks about, that we're all on... First one learns the Dharma, but does not yet understand it. Then one understands, but has not yet practiced. One practices, but has not seen the truth of Dharma. Then one sees Dharma but one's being has not yet become dharma. The sotapanna, the stream-enterer, enters the dharma and sees the dharma. But his or her being is not yet dharma. Sometimes there will be anger or desire and he will know them, yet still follow after them, because although he knows and sees dharma, his being is not yet dharma. The mind has not become dharma. So, he may study dharma, understand dharma, practice dharma, and see dharma, but to actually be dharma is something quite different. It is a place for each individual to reach, a point where there is no falsehood. From hearing the Dharma all the way to seeing it, you will still have suffering, and you won't be free of unsatisfactory experiences until you are Dharma. Until you are Dharma, your happiness still depends on external factors. You lean on them, You lean on pleasure, on reputation, on wealth and material things. You may have all sorts of knowledge, but this knowledge is still tainted by worldliness and cannot release you from suffering. You are still like a bird in a cage.
it requires persistence, work, practice. But there, there is this unfolding. I mean, he's being realistic, how challenging it is. But, I mean, to me, it's also good news. We can study Dharma, then, then we, we can understand it, then we can practice, then we can have tastes. We're all having tastes of Dharma, then seeing the Dharma. But as Ramana Maharshi says, don't take the dawn to be the midday sun. You know, we have a flash and then we put our sign up to the world. I'm free. Sujita once said, it's like looking through a little hole in a wall and you, you see and you think, wow, I'm done. <laughs> and, and forget that, that there's still this huge wall there. But you know, you have broken through and that's important. And, that, and that's important. That is important. but to, to encourage us to keep working, keep cultivating this path. And then basically, you know, the path is, is, uh, is, is, is simple. It's arduous, but simple. The Buddha summed it up very simply, to refrain from all that's evil, all that's really unwholesome, what really hurts ourselves and others. It's the first line. This is talking about the, the practice to avoid, you know, harming. This is about the following. This is keeping per the precepts, which then is a gift to countless immeasurable beings so that they can all breathe a sigh of relief and be free from oppression. When we resolve not to harm, not to take what doesn't belong to us, not to exploit anyone, to use, not to use speech falsely, maliciously, harshly, meaninglessly. And we resolve to, to protect our consciousness by not just seeking Nibbana through intoxication. It's a gift and we can learn not, that's this, what this first line is, sabbapapasakaranam, then kusala suppasampada. The next line is kusala, the wholesome, upasampada, lifting up the wholesome, like we've been doing this week. Cultivating mindfulness. Cultivating, training the mind to vitaka, come to the moment. Vichara, be receptive and feel it out. Cultivating piti, savoring, being filled with simplicity. Ease, single-mindedness, cultivating patience, kindness, cultivating what we've been is, is praising that which is worthy of praise, the holding of the name. Cultivating gatheredness, lifting up that which is good. And that's the ground, ultimately that's 
when, uh, when the mind is trained to become unified and present, then that mind can be turned to the outflows, turned to what keeps us from knowing our true nature, turned to look at the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion. And the last, uh, or the next line is, you know, to refrain from the harmful, to lift up the good, Sajitta pariyoda panang. Sajitta means your heart. This heart of ours, pariyoda panang, to purify the heart. To purify the heart. That's just what we've been doing these last four days, purifying the heart of its false notions. Freeing the heart from the, the walls of all these marks, this papancha, consciously creates, that we create these walls, these limitations, these boundaries. Diving into, giving ourselves to the, into this fire of purification, which requires patience, it's not easy, as we then bear all the demons, all the restlessnesses and... despairs and hopes and fears and cross them over through patience, through wisdom, letting them arise and cease, arise and cease, arise and cease, so that the tendency to keep becoming those, be swept away by those, little by little wears away. burns away. The Buddha described that the ultimate tapas, the ultimate purification is patiently allowing this process. Yes, in flashes we see through the wall, we see the space, the vastness, but there's still all these conditioned tendencies that have to be worn away. Because if they keep coming back, then we need to patiently let them be our teachers, remembering the I know you, Mara. Then Mara, as was so beautifully pointed out in the talks, becomes, he's, he's, he's one of our aids. Keeps us sharp, or as Ajahn Chah says, you know, these obstructions, these afflictions are like sharpening stones. Don't be in too big a hurry to get rid of all your problems. If you aren't too big of a hurry to get rid of your problems and we start imagining we don't have any, that's a big problem. It's a very big problem. Might be the biggest problem. Response in the way are intertwining conceivably, and then we we allow for the magic that it unfolds not the way we necessarily think. Not only that, well, it won't unfold as we think, but the way our practice has a response. If we can keep just listening, being open, 
What a mystery it. I guess that was twenty-four, eight, thirty-two, thirty-two years ago when I I'd done my first meditation retreat. And a PhD psychiatrist who lived in Thailand was touring around Oxford to talk with and discuss his ideas on the origin of thought with Oxford philosophers. <clears throat> he was some sort of Buddhist academic. And he'd come onto this retreat. Not, not to do the retreat, he was just visiting. I was on a silent Goenka retreat, one of my first retreats. And one of the managers came up to me afterwards and said, oh, uh, there's this guy here looking for a place to stay in Oxford. Will, can he stay with you? You're a student, aren't you there? You have a flat? I said, sure. What a mystery. Little did I know that this very quite confident, loud, no hesitation. This man did not hesitate. Strong. He'd walked across the North Pole, dined with the king and queen of Thailand, flew, brilliant on everything. But in the course of a conversation, and he was telling me he'd studied all the different meditation, it was a hobby, studying meditation monasteries all over Thailand, doing personality tests to see the results of meditation on their personality structures. And then he talked about, but there's one special monastery, and there's a special teacher. And how this mystery of this man reverently. I, I didn't know reverence. I didn't know this thing reverence. I didn't, wouldn't even have the name for it then, but when he spoke about Ajahn Chah, he became soft and humble, and he was praising. He said his name. He praised him as this man is the real thing. And something in just that quality. And he said, and he has a few Westerners with him, and he has one senior Westerner there, Ajahn Sumedho, and if he's not enlightened, he's pretty close. <laughs> but something about that. And what a mystery that, that, I, that that would knock me over. It was a matter of weeks, and I was out of Oxford gotten a leave of absence. I didn't come back, didn't go back. And when I when I met this this man, the, the who didn't tap me on the head, and, and what I didn't tell you is what well, most of you have heard it, but you know, he ended up in that same conversation when he was talking about me going around in a circle. He then uh, basically, uh, he didn't hold up a flower, but he commented on my meditation by getting down on the floor like a dog and sniffing all over the place. <laughs> and as I said before, I was intuitive 
intuitive enough to guess that he wasn't impressed with my meditation. <laughs> that dog was sniffing all over the place. And yet there was something that, that made me trust that his making fun was loving. I really felt he cared. And yet that's a mystery too, when you trust somebody. It's a mystery. And then when my family was just devastated that I'd left, I mean, they were so happy I'd won a Rhodes Scholarship, and then I, I went off and left Oxford. They thought I'd been abducted by a cult or something. They were devastated. But they were so concerned and loving that they decided to come out to Thailand to see me, see where I was, which was a big deal from Hickson, Tennessee. <laughs> That's a big deal. And for my mom to go into a forest with animals and things, it was a big deal. And, and, when, and to see the way the Ajahn Chah was my Kuan Yin, to see the different hands and eyes, the different expressions that he had when my parents came. Because most uh, Westerners were so horrified when their kids went off and ordained, and you know, he rarely, they all, meaning would some disown their children, some were hating the monks, you know, to have actually parents there. Ajahn Chah just took the time to really receive them. And uh, oh, but all the pain, because I love my parents. My parents love me, but you know, I mean, having my parents in the Thai Forest Monastery, it was it was challenging, because my own mind, I, it was a trip to the Orient too. So my the mom had cameras, and there was kind of <laughs> going everywhere and. And, and bless her heart, she had lipstick on her. I thought, oh, and my mind was saying she shouldn't have the lipstick. And I'm just, oh, now I'm so ashamed I even felt that way. But I had that, she had the lipstick, and Dad's voice was so loud, you could have heard it in Cambodia. <laughs> booming this voice. And I'm just thinking, oh. And Ajahn Chah was so patient, so patient, so kind. You don't just, because he knew Westerners in such a big hurry, you don't just go there and ordain, all right, I'm ready to be a monk. You know, he'd make you wait for months and years. But he, when he saw my family there, he decided right at the moment to ordain me as a novice so that my family could feel a part of what I was doing, so that they could be a part of the ceremony. It was, it was so kind. They felt a part of it. They, they were a part of handing me my robes and my bowl. My parents offered Ajahn Chah a meal. God, and the whole monastery. That's another story. And, and then when Dad 
who's very worried about politics in that part of the world. I mean, remember, this is, this is soon after Vietnam had fallen. This is, this is Laos is, is going nuts after Cambodia, nightmare. And, my, and so there's a, basically a military, the day I arrived, a military coup. The Thai military took over. They didn't want this country to do what these others were doing. And that had its own shadows, the military takeover in, in Thailand. But, but my, my father was concerned with Ajahn Chah about safety of uh, you know, the monastery. And what about these communist guerrillas? And you know, he's going on like that. And Ajahn Chah gave this beautiful Dhamma talk to my father. And he said, the, the gorillas that you really need to worry about. The ones that will rob you of peace. The thieves, the gorillas, the terrorists are the ones in your heart. Those are the ones you need to really be watchful over. I don't remember exactly what he went into, but you, you know what I mean. This, this really giving a beautiful talk about the importance of that if we don't see that, no matter where we are, even if we don't have any, even if we're wealthy and have a so-called peaceful society, if we don't understand these forces in the heart, we'll make ourselves and others miserable. Beautiful. You know what mysteries the response and the way are intertwined conceivably. That an inebriated real estate agent in Habaroni would uh, laugh in a way that reminded me of my old friend, and my old South African friend, and I would just casually say, I wonder if my friend is alive to see the new South Africa, and he said, I'll track him down. And that out of that moment came Dhammagiri. So may we trust in this way. Keep returning our life to this way of calling for blessings and blessing until those become perfectly merged. Patiently gathering everything into the fire of awareness, little by little, purifying body, speech, and mind. Letting it cool down Letting everything merge in Nibbana. Amato Gadasa Vedama.
letting everything merge in the deathless and all things cease, all separateness ceases in Nibbana. Nibbana Pariyosana. Pariyosana. So finishing with a a poem of Tanisarus that I like. Fireminder. At the end of a long day, as dusk falls, embers in the fire cool, she turns and walks away. What was all the fuss about? Who knows? No more time to think and worry, only stillness remains. Silence settles and the fireminder is no longer seen as she merges into night.